You're listening to the GDA Podcast, the brainchild of Gail and Kyle Davis. This mother and son duo bring their different perspectives, interests, and experience to their conversations with the best thought leaders, educators, policy experts, motivators, and keynote speakers on the speaking circuit today. Gail Davis is the founder and president of the premier keynote speakers bureau, GDA Speakers. Beginning in 1999, GDA Speakers is a full-service, client-centric keynote speakers bureau known for working with clients to create memorable experiences. Kyle Davis grew up in the family business. He's a graduate of Columbia University, has owned his own business, lived in several cities across the U.S., worked in media, and spent the last three years working at tech startups in San Francisco and New York. To stay up to date, visit gdapodcast.com and subscribe to our newsletter to receive updates on new episodes, blog posts, and much more. Be sure to follow GDA Podcast on Twitter and Instagram at GDA Podcast, as well as Facebook at facebook.com slash GDA Podcast. For booking information, visit GDA Speakers at gdaspeakers.com or call 214-420-1999. And now, here's this episode of GDA Podcast, powered by GDA Speakers. Enjoy. Sure. Uh, my name is Jason Schenker. I run a company called Prestige Economics. Uh, I'm a financial market futurist. And uh, as you've just heard from Kyle, I've, I've been ranked consistently uh, one of the highest forecasters for my forecast accuracy uh, in the world. And uh, I also uh, am involved in not only in financial market forecasting, but also with different fintech initiatives and published a few books and uh, I also uh, write for Bloomberg News. Nice. And you have a book coming up uh, later this month, right? That's right, yes. In the month of February 2017, the end of the month, uh, the book Jobs for Robots will be released. Uh, very excited about that. The subtitle is uh, Between Robocalypse and Robotopia. Uh, I'm very excited about, uh, about this. It's, uh, it's something I've been working on for a while. Well, that should be uh, a very uplifting read for people worried about their jobs. <laughs> so um, that being said, you know, let, let's just transition. I mean, you're, you're consistently awarded um, and acknowledged as, as one of the most accurate forecasters. And like, uh, like I said, Bloomberg has been ranked as number one in 20 different categories. So I'm, I'm wondering, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners are wondering, is how did you get to this point? What was the beginning for, for young Jason Shanker when you came up? And, and what made you realize that you had a passion uh, for this? And um, what's your methodology? You know, that, that giant question, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I like to think of myself as young, but I suppose I, I would now call myself young-ish. But the younger version of myself, you know, started uh, with a lot of grad school and, and uh, I did my first master's degree was in German literature, which had surprisingly less to do with this than you'd think. But uh, my second master's degree was in econometrics and that's very statistically focused. And so uh, that uh, that training was very helpful. And then I worked in investment banking for uh, a number of years and began forecasting very quickly in that role, uh, made some very what, what seemed to be outlandish predictions, like in the beginning of 2004, when I was a new economist, I predicted that before the end of that year, the price of oil would close above $50. And, and 
I, I remember a lot of people were really surprised at that forecast. I had some reporters uh, from large media publications call me up to sort of laugh at that prediction. And then before the end of the year, at the end of September, the price of oil did indeed close above $50 a barrel. Uh, and, and at that point, I I had kind of uh, shown my my propensity and proclivities towards forecasting and began forecasting more and more things. I did a stint in uh, consulting as a risk specialist with McKinsey uh, after working in investment banking as an economist at Wachovia. And then uh, after McKinsey started my own shop, Prestige Economics, in 2009. And for every quarter that we've been eligible to be top ranked, we've been top ranked across multiple categories. Uh, and, you know, I think what makes what I do different than what other forecasters do or what other futurists do is uh, that my forecasts are informed by not only a quantitative modeling, but also by qualitative information flow. Uh, I'm a firm believer that, you know, you can get a lot by looking at numbers on a screen and reading reports, but you don't get all of it. You need to show up. And I don't know any other futurists who go to OPEC meetings and meet with the Fed and uh, personally advise the European Central Bank and the Bank of England and corporate clients. I know a lot of economists and I know a lot of futurists and some of them do one of those things, but not all of those things. And so I think that that's very helpful. And uh, I think being in Texas, which is where I'm based and based in Austin, like GDA, uh, is very helpful for my perspective. I think that uh, analysts, uh, forecasters that are in New York or London uh, may be more subject to groupthink. And by being quite literally out of the geographic box, my thinking is forced out of the box as well. So it helps to be you know, a contrarian and to have a, not, not just that the, the number, so to speak, but then just the ability to you know, almost read the tea leaves. If you're, if you're in that OPEC meeting, seeing what the, the, the vibe or the mood is in the room, uh, to help kind of influence your decision making, right? Yeah, I mean, and I think it's it's not so much about being a contrarian. You know, I'd say that you know sometimes my view is with the consensus, but I think it's you know getting that qualitative information. You know, having those conversations with real decision makers, whether it's uh, in central banking or oil, whether it's corporate executives in manufacturing or uh, or ministers from different uh, OPEC member countries. Those conversations are extremely valuable to understand what people are really thinking. And uh, that's that's really been very, very helpful for uh, my own predictions. And I'd also say, uh, having been an economist now for a little while, uh, something that's really important too is not just being able to read the tea leaves, but being able to distinguish between the signal and the noise, between what data really matters and what is just numbers. Right. That's, I mean, that's, you know, I know we're going to talk about your book uh, here in a little bit, The Jobs for Robots, but it's, it's so interesting because I have a lot of friends of mine who work in like IB and, and just different things like that in New York. And they have a lot of these like automated computer programs that just pretty much make all of their decisions for them. And I think it's kind of uh, it's refreshing sometimes to hear that, you know, in order to make an accurate forecast or prediction, you have to almost have uh, that conversation with a person. And at the end of the day, a, a robot, at least right now, or a computer algorithm can't can't do that. So uh, that's that's interesting. That's that's awesome. 
Yeah, and I've, I've been asked this question. I gave a, a keynote on, on the FinTech outlook and some different futurist topics in a speech in Houston not too long ago. And someone asked me, they said, well, do you do your forecast using uh, artificial intelligence machine learning? And I said, well, there are statistical models that I've built that underpin my forecast. But at the end of the day, you, you know, some of the stuff you just can't get by looking at numbers everyone has. You know, there there is this, uh, you know, this this market hypothesis around perfect information. And the truth is everyone knows something, but not everyone knows everything. And if you're looking at the same data or you're analyzing the same data as everyone else, if there is an arbitrage, if there is something that you're identifying is different, it's only a matter of time before those other computer programs identify it too. And so where the real edge is in knowing what's going on is, you know, being in some of the information flow and, and actually having an idea on what decision makers are thinking and how they are likely to act. Got it. Now, the last time you were in the, uh, the GDA office, um, you were coming around here and talking about your uh, – I think believe new book then, but um, it was electing recession, right? And yep. um, you know, 2016 has come to an end, and I'd like to get kind of what your your feedback is, and, and what this last year was from an economics kind of perspective. And then, you know, now we know who the the new president uh, elect is going to be. What does um, not so much his economic policy, if you want to talk about that, you can. But what does some of the challenges and, and what will, at, at the very least, 2017 look like uh, from like a market prediction and analyst kind of point of view? Well, you know, I think that there's a couple of things we see. Um, there is a lot of, and we did a survey, and this is one of the ways, you know, if we want to talk about how do you get data, I'm a firm believer in surveys of uh, executives, of decision makers, Again, this is where you get real information, you know, aggregated information, right? Not, not company specific. But we asked our, our client base and we said, well, what do you think of the, the results of the election? How will this affect what you're going to do? And what we saw was our clients said that they were expecting cuts in personal income tax, corporate income tax, uh, reductions in regulations and increases in government spending. In other words, our corporate clients are planning 2017 as if a Trump administration will cut taxes like Reagan and spend money like FDR. And while there's a lot of optimism around that sort of thing, the problem is there's also the wee little tiny issue of that $20 trillion in national debt and the $200 trillion of entitlement obligations that are out there. And so while there is this... Uh, optimism, lower tax rates, of course, that, you know, these kinds of things uh, increase the value of companies, which is why equity markets are up. But of course, equity markets are also up because people are selling bonds. Why are they selling bonds? Well, they're worried that you're going to get the stimulus when the economy has been doing okay, but the unemployment rate's relatively low. And then you get all this government spending and then the government has to sell more debt. Maybe there aren't too many buyers. So now those interest rates go up. And so people don't want to own bonds. People sell the bonds and they buy the equities and maybe it's optimism and maybe it's rotation out of bonds, right? Maybe it's one, maybe it's the other, like whatever. But the point is 
it's going to take a little while for any of these tax cuts to have an impact before they would even become law. And it's going to take a while for the money to show up, right? If the government's going to spend, when does that money show up? And by the way, when does that actually impact the economy? So I think there are still some risks to investment and net exports, two of the main contributing parts of GDP in the first half of 2017, right? We've got a very strong dollar and investment has been in recession for about a year now. And most people don't really realize that, but uh, even housing, residential fixed investment, that's new homes, has been in recession for two quarters. So, you know, that that's something people don't really think about. And by the way, higher interest rates aren't going to make that a better situation. Now, tax cuts will make it better. Government spending will make it better. Now, there are, you know, there's no free lunch here, right? Then that makes national debt go up another thing, whatever. But until those tax cuts happen, uh, until the that government spending happens, you might see companies still hold back on investment. And meanwhile, interest rates may still be more elevated. So you could still see investment be in recession in the first half of this year in 2017. And that's a bit of a challenge, right? It's been in recession for about a year. Yeah, I think by the time we're done, six, seven consecutive quarters of negative investment. But this year we see GDP growth between one and one and a half percent. It's a weak year. But next year we see it closer to three percent. That would be the strongest growth rate since uh, before the Great Recession. So you know, I think there are upside risks for next year because that's when the the laws that are passed in the first hundred to two hundred days this year, the money has to show. So first, the laws get passed. You know, we've all seen the the bill on Capitol Hill, right? You know, there's the whole process, the schoolhouse rock thing. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, no, exactly. And you know, we've all seen that, right? And that, that takes a little while, right? And there's, you know, there's the House and the Senate, and then it's going to be signed into law. And then, and then the money has to actually show up and where the tax cuts have to have an impact. That doesn't happen towards the end of the year. But for 18, that really tees up, I think, some strong growth, uh, but also higher interest rates. So I think you've got a few different things going on. Uh, I think that there is optimism. Interestingly, again, I rather than talk about my opinion, I'd rather talk about dozens of executives that I've surveyed. Uh, you know, they say that they're one third of our clients are are expecting more business activity next year or in 2017 as a direct result of the of the election. One quarter are planning to spend more on capex, but almost none of them are prepared to hire more people. So this is really interesting because they're expecting more business like manna to fall from heaven and they're expecting to spend more money, but less money than they're expecting more business. And yet they're expecting to do it with no new people. And this is very, very interesting. And I think from a CapEx and a spending standpoint, what's really important is, again, I think that executives, corporate strategy guys who've been burned in the past, they're going to go, look, show me the money before I, I actually spend it. They want to see the tax cuts. They want to see the spending. So that's why I think end of the year looks better. Next year looks great. Got it. So more hiring uh, in a year or so, I guess, if, if, that, if it's you looking know, I like think that. We're I, think. See, I, I think we're going to see some, some solid, you know, relatively solid Hiring, I think it's going to slow further in the first half of the year, pick up by the end of the year, uh, but be better in 2018. I mean, like, we could see some very strong numbers. And at that point, the challenge is what's the Fed going to do as the Fed has to try to pull back, uh, tighten monetary policy because fiscal stimulus could be there. And then, of course, there's the big question. 
the really big question, which is, are the fiscally conservative members of the Republican Party going to let this all happen? Are they going to let the national debt it go up much, much more, which is what would be required here. Will the party that's been saying it's fiscally conservative hold that fiscally conservative line or not? And if they do, then there's going to be some uncertainty in the first half of the year, which could be unpleasant for equity markets. Uh, you know, hey, we're all expecting these tax cuts. That's priced in. Everything's going to be great. Whoa. What, what do you mean? There's there's a debate here about fiscal conservatism. Uh Oh, where are the free goodies that that we've been talking about? Where's all that spending? Uh Oh, and if and if there's there's going to be some back and forth at some point. And when that comes up as a discussion, I don't think financial markets will respond positively. Again, a reason things might be dicey in the in the first half or so of 2017. So 2017 hashtag volatility. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, yeah, 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 yeah. Hashtag, uh-oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, something like that. Something like that. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's transition into something that I know a little bit about uh, as I equalize myself and realize that I'm popping mics over here. But, um, you know, a lot of people know, uh, if they've been listening to the podcast, that I was in the startup space. And particularly what I haven't really talked about a whole lot was I was in the startup fintech space. I worked for a payment provider, uh, a big one called Square, you know, the white little dongle. Mm -hmm. Jack Dorsey, send me some money. Uh, <laughs> then I uh, worked for another company as well that did uh, automated ACH payments and just different things like that. And uh, you, sir, you are in the fintech space. Uh, so tell us what you were doing there. So I've been involved with a couple of different startups. I was involved with a, a crowdfunding uh, aggregator uh, called New Chip. I'm now involved with and running a fintech startup doing foreign exchange disintermediation called Hedgefly. And I also run something called the Futurist Institute of America, uh, designed to help uh, economists and analysts become futurists, help, uh, you know, this is this is the thing, right? And I know we talk about this and we're, we've kind of hinted at my, my book jobs for robots, but the big challenge is that there needs to be a call to action for people to think more long term, right? If we look at uh, forecasting, whether we're talking weather or we're talking GDP, it becomes a lot easier to forecast in the more immediate term for macroeconomic or uh, or weather conditions or, or almost anything. Short term gets easier for computers. Longer term requires a lot more out of the box thinking, requires uh, a lot more uh, anticipation of, of unknown unknowns and an ability to, to, to sort of price that in or model that in to what you're expecting from a strategic standpoint. And so that's really the push towards being a futurist rather than just being uh, you know, short-term focused because a lot of that short-term, you know, big data is really helping people get there. But the, the medium and long-term, at some point, you know, just from a fractal standpoint or if we think about a probability distribution standpoint, the, the, the potential outcomes begin to spiral out of control and you – you need someone to kind of take the helm from that signal noise perspective and really just uh, tighten it up. And that's one of the areas where I do think that you're still going to see a really critical need uh, for people in the future. You know, I think that managing other people, managing processes, that's not something that computers can do. Thinking about strategic decision making, not just tactical, but strategic, 
you know, those are things. So those are the different things that I've been focused on. I mean, these are, uh, you know, a few of the main key areas in fintech right now. If you're looking at disruption, you're looking at disintermediation, you're looking at crowdfunding uh, and, and you're looking at, uh, you know, machine learning and, and also going beyond big data from a professional standpoint and the future of work. These are a lot of the hot topics right now that I, I, uh, I've been working on and, and in a very hands on way. But I'm also uh, I write about in the book. Jobs for robots. <laughs> Jobs for robots. Great. So, what's um, what what is the big the big to do though right now, uh, or this last little bit within like the fintech space, or, or particularly maybe with what you've been doing with um, with Hedgefly uh, and everybody else? Like, what what do you see? You know how, how this this little fintech little niche market is going because I, I remember when i was in new york uh working for my my fintech startup a, a couple years ago and this was like right when betterment uh the the financial investing long-term investing company was coming online and they were like the big to do there and and then you have like i said square and you have all these other cool companies um what is it that your what is it that your company does and and how how can it get people involved in that what well, you know, I think there are a few different things right now. I think there's, you know, fintech is very hot. It's going to be very hot. Uh, banks have had monopolies over different kinds of activities for some time. And now you have really a big move towards democratization uh, in the financial space. And that's one of the main themes of what's going on in fintech right now. Uh, democratization and, and disintermediation are two of the big things. And so anything that helps reduce cost and eases uh, transaction and transactability are things that are going to be positive. Plus, I think you also have some disillusionment with traditional banks, brick and mortar and the like. So uh, I think that that what you're going to continue to see is this push. I think that there's uh, I, I don't expect consolidation, but I think there are, um, especially on the passive management side where you see uh, a lot of different investment funds, right? There's been a big move away from active management to passive management. It reduces the, the asset under management fees, which is great, right? That's a big positive, but we haven't seen how they respond in a downturn. And the only problem about being in a long fund is you are always long. And if the markets fall, you lose money. So I think there's going to be a real challenge to the uh, passively managed funds to see how they respond to big downdrafts. Uh, it, you know, if we were to, you know, whenever we see the next downturn, we see the next recession, you know, will these uh, passively managed funds get out of the way or will they ride it all the way down? And if they ride it all the way down or if they ride it down too long, you could see a pushback towards active asset management rather than passive. Again, this gets back to it depends on your investment horizon and it depends on, uh, you know, what you're thinking about. But if you're taking a, a more uh, futurist perspective on things, are you trying to make a strategic three to five year decision like you do with a private equity group or with long term investments? Or are you trying to, you know, game the market on a very short term basis? Um, I also happen to be a chartered market technician. So I actually have a professional designation in in this sort of chart trending and market watching on a very tactical basis. And you can see where the robots are in the market. You can very clearly see where they are. If I show you a chart, and I do this usually in presentations, here's a line, you see that line, the minute that line was crossed, 
huge sell-offs. And the reason that happens is the robots were watching that line and everyone knew that line was there for like a year. The problem is what happens if the market does things uh, that are unanticipated, right? Which happens from time to time. If everything's on autopilot and something goes awry, you know, will the uh, passive asset management side of fintech, how will that fare? Now that's 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 its own question, but as for disintermediation, things like what I'm doing with Hedgeline on the foreign exchange side to help uh, reduce cost and increase access for small and medium-sized enterprises uh, to foreign exchange transactions and and the ability to manage risk, you know, that's a big deal, right? You you either need to be a really big guy right now, uh, and and by the way, the foreign exchange market um, is almost is between one and a half and two quadrillion dollars per year, not billion, not trillion, quadrillion. So it's by far the biggest market in the world, one and a half, one and a half to two quadrillion dollars a year. And there's, you know, if, if, if you're a little guy, you pay very big spreads. And if you're a big guy, you pay very small spreads. And if you're somewhere in between, you might not even have any options where you end up forced to pay the big spread. So we're really trying to fill that gap in in what options exist for small and medium-sized enterprises that have foreign exchange risk. Cool. One of the things that just kind of popped into my mind, um, and this is just goes to, to startups in general, not just fintech, but um, yeah, I remember probably about a year or so ago that uh, VC capital was starting maybe to slow down a little bit or, or people were starting to do a lot more later stage investing. Um, I'm just curious as to what your thoughts are with that since you you are involved in the startup space and where you see uh, venture capital going uh, in 2017 with the volatility uh, that we talked about earlier. Well, I think that people are looking to put their money to work. Uh, even though we're seeing higher interest rates, I think that's also providing an incentive for people to sell things like bonds and look for a little bit more action, right? I'm I'm also a member of something called CTAN, which is the Central Texas Angel Network. It's actually the largest or most active angel investor network in the country. Uh, and so angel investing has become quite hot. I think we're going to see that continue. I think things like crowdfunding uh, and crowdfunding private equity are going to be hot. Uh, I think you're going to see more of that sort of thing. Venture capital, especially in fintech, that's been on a huge tear, right? That's uh, that's increasing by multiples every year. That's going to be really hot. And of course, the banking space is just such a monster. And it's, uh, you know, in many ways, uh, somewhat of a, a more traditional business ripe for disruption that I think you're going to see VC funds still plow money into fintech. Uh, I think it's really in the next slowdown or downturn where uh, I think you're going to see what survives from fintech. But anything that makes uh, life easier and cheaper uh, is going to be good. But there are some things that have costs and there are uh, different companies in the space that you know, we've seen have challenges that maybe offered credit and now there's question of whether it's the right thing or cryptocurrencies that are still quite new. Uh, you know, is this the final product? Uh, those things are still questions to be resolved and it's sort of, you know, to be continued. But the disruption is going to continue in the year ahead. That's for sure. But some of these things, you know, the jury's still out on. Yeah. 
I love how you mentioned cryptocurrency. I actually, uh, I just went uh, car shopping recently, and I, I was reminded that uh, it wasn't so long ago that you could buy a Ferrari with Bitcoin, but you could only pay with the Bitcoin on a day that their like uh, analysts said they would take it, because then they were going to flip yep. it, like project flip it, uh, and make money off it. So. That's kind of funny. Uh, let, let's switch over to uh, your new little gig that you'll be starting. Uh, you are now a newly minted contributor for Bloomberg. Um, what are you What are you going to be writing about for them? So uh, it's a new column, part of Bloomberg View called Bloomberg Profits, uh, and it's uh, a group, a cohort of some of the highest ranked forecasters and analysts out there, and. Uh, given my track record, of course, I was uh, on the short list, so I'm, I'm very pleased to be part of this new initiative at Bloomberg and to be a, a formal contributor. And, uh, you know, weekly articles and sometimes bi-weekly, it's going to be great. Uh, very excited uh, to be partnering with uh, such a very strong brand, and I've had a very long-standing relationship with Bloomberg. They've uh, statistically analyzed my forecasts for years, and it's nice to you know, have that validation to be named one of the profits in the space. Well, that's nice. Maybe, uh, maybe if I ask hard enough, they'll send me my own terminal. <laughs> I doubt it. I, I don't think I'm going to be able to get my terminal. But I do watch Bloomberg, and I always love it when they go, we're going to the terminal. I'm like, okay, gotcha. Uh, I need one of those. Uh, very it it cool. is a great platform. It's it, fantastic. Yes, yeah. it, is, it is good. Well, that that's really exciting. So uh, you are a, a profit for Bloomberg. That's that's great. Let's um, let's talk about kind of what we do a, a little bit here at GDA, uh, and this is the the GDA podcast, like I said. But with GDA speakers, um, we are a keynote booking agency uh, for for keynote speakers and different things like that. And we've done a lot of work with Jason, and um, you know, Jason has provided us uh, with basically uh, kind of a, the go to guy for econ- uh, economics. Oh, economics. I don't even know what word I just said. Economics. <laughs> and uh, I, I just kind of want you to just uh, briefly just tell tell people what it is um, within your your sixty to ninety minutes that it is that you cover, and you know what kind of preparation that you might do for a particular engagement. Sure. You know, what I typically cover are, uh, you know, issues with the economy, U.S. economy tend to be very U.S. centric. uh, But I also have done a number of international speaking gigs and cover international economic dynamics as well. I forecast U.S. economic indicators, currencies, energy prices, oil and gas, metals prices, both industrial and precious metals uh, and agricultural prices. So I usually tailor the discussion to the group. But I'm talking about the different things going on in the U.S. economy, Fed policy, interest rates, things we've kind of talked about a little bit in this podcast. And most important for me is that it should be accessible information. So anyone who's there uh, who, who would hear my speech comes away understanding what I'm thinking, why I'm thinking it, and should have a very reasonable understanding as to why, right? And and I like to think I'm a reasonable guy, and usually I have pretty reasonable logic behind my forecast, and uh, that's really important to be able to convey that. I I know there's a lot of economists, I think all of us had, uh, or a number of us have had professors in school, and some were great, and and some were snooze fest. And I think what's really important for me is to keep economics exciting and to try to make it really tangible and interesting and understandable for the folks who are there. Uh, I also like to focus on the group that I'm talking to, tailoring it and making sure we have good time for Q&A. 
because usually folks have a lot of different questions, whether it's about interest rates or gold prices or oil or the dollar or maybe it's the peso, the different things that we can get to uh, within the talk of 45 minutes of talk, 20 minutes of Q&A, or it's an hour, it's an hour 15, and, and Q&A mentioned as well. Uh, I think that's, uh, you know, we try to make sure to have a good time, try to tell a few jokes, uh, you know, as funny as, as economics can be, and, uh, and, you know, go from there. Well, I can definitely say you are not the the college professor economist walking around in your, uh, you know, elbow patch jacket uh, and uh, you you know, with your with your pipe and everything else. You know, you you are definitely a, a sharp dressed man with cufflinks and all. And <laughs> why? Well, thank you. Yes, thank we, you, God. We, we're we're, we're doing this uh, we're doing this podcast via Skype, and he dressed to the nines uh, for this <laughs> while I'm sitting here in a in a in a very tech startup, no lie, Dolores Park hoodie from San Francisco. A backwards, yes, yes, yes. Backwards hat and a V-neck because that's that's the startup life. Um, <laughs> so so very cool. But more more towards more towards uh, what Jason does. What's so great about um, your presentation style and. I think if some people have listened to this podcast, I could talk about a lot of different things, but economics is just math is not my strong suit. I will give that to my brother, uh, but it, to me, economics just really isn't and understanding how it works and everything else. It can be a little bit of a challenge for me, but when you came into the office a few months ago and you did your uh, brief little presentation for us, it was very accessible. It was very easy to understand. But more importantly, the PowerPoint that you showed us uh, made it so much easier to digest as well. So if anybody's wondering, um, you know, what it is Jason can do for you, just hire him. He's awesome. It'll be amazing. You'll love it. Um, so let's uh, let's just transition to the final thing and talk about uh, Jobs for Robots, your upcoming book. Sure thing, Kyle. Well, th- and thanks for the kind words. I, yeah. uh, I it's really important to me for. Um, for my audience is not only to enjoy what they hear, but to understand it all. And I've always long believed, and I've always said that if someone is in one of my presentations and they don't understand what I'm talking about, that's my fault, right? Because if I'm the one who knows how these markets work and knows how the economy functions, it's my job to translate it in a way that everybody, you know, can get it right. And that's, that's one of the most important things for me Uh, in jobs for robots. Uh, and, and this is a good segue. You know, there are uh, an, uh, there are opportunities. That's why it's it's between Robocalypse and Robotopia. You know, there are positive opportunities presented uh, by automation, but there are big challenges. Right? It could be good for corporate profits. It can be good for GDP. It can be good for increasing higher skilled jobs. But the problem is the absolute number of jobs is likely to go down and the skills gap is likely to widen. And again, this is one of the reasons I've uh, spent and dedicated some time to building out the Futurist Institute of America. I think it's really important. There's a huge missing gap between uh, what people you know, can do now and what they need to do in the future. And I think people are not prepared for this. Uh, transportation, retail, you know, you look at automated, the the cars that are already out there self-driving, the trucks that are out there self-driving, the the Amazon Go store where you don't even need to check out, you know, those, how many jobs will those sorts of things replace? And then, of course, there's last mile technology, uh, you know, in terms of the supply chain changing very drastically. Now, 
while the retail side of the economy may be becoming supply chain direct to your door instead of brick and mortar, and you're, you're changing the way things are, are, are dispatched, uh, what's happening is also there are transitions to other things, high service oriented jobs. Uh, those sorts of things are, are likely to see big opportunities. You might have heard the phrase that uh, restaurants are the new retail. That's very true. I think we're going to see that continue. You're going to see a lot of personal service sorts of things uh, continue to see growth. But job and sectors that have, have been in existence for a very long time, transportation, retail, those things will continue to uh, experience pain. The kioskification uh, of industries will continue at an accelerated pace. It will be disruptive to the labor market, especially, again, from a skills gap perspective, sort of lower skilled jobs, those are the most at risk here. And so uh, premium on education becomes more important. And the good news is, is if we think about uh, the world in a zero marginal cost society, and we think about education being where you bridge that gap, a lot more uh, education is becoming more easily accessible online. There is a democratization and a disruption in the education side that can help us get there. But the question is, will we get there fast enough? How quickly will uh, the jobs disappear in some places? How quickly can the skills gap be bridged? And I think there's going to be kind of a clunky transition here, uh, and we'll end up somewhere between Robocalypse and Robotopia. No, I, I agree with that one, actually. Um, you know, I mean, you're already starting to see it kind of with like the gig economy, like everybody going from being like a taxi driver to now an Uber driver and how it works with that. I mean, there, there's that short term kind of gig economy. Uh, and then I think in the long term, um, I mean, you, I mean, I talk about this a lot, but I was at um, last year's NRF, which is the National Retail Federation their big expo that they had in uh, in New York City, and it was automated conveyor belts for shopping. It's putting your bread yep. on a conveyor belt, and it just scans it. There's no need for the bag check person or anything else. So it goes back to that kioskification, if I'm saying that right, uh, of kind of where, of where we're going. And the direction seems to be pointing towards, um, you know, highly educated individuals to help service this, and uh, it, should be, it should be interesting. I don't know. Yep. What does uh, but in, in an ideal world, what does uh, Robotopia? What does that look like? Are we talking about like a, a universal basic income and a P ninety or P one hundred D Tesla for everybody? Like, what are we what are we talking? Well, about? Well, I think the Robotopia is you know it it, it looks like so there, there's two things. Even the the ideal Robotopia where everyone has more money and more time and more income and we're all just free to follow the pursuits of our hearts. You know, the, the problem with that is idle hands are the work of the devil. And I'm concerned that if, if people don't have enough stuff to do that, <laughs> you know, some people and, and I'm like this and I know people with high ambition, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and, and, and people with a, just some kind of internal drive. They're like German shepherds. Right. Mm -hmm. And you know what happens when you leave a German shepherd at home alone with your furniture for too long? You don't have any more furniture, right? They just rip up their own furniture. They cause their own problems because they just don't have enough stuff to do, right? Mm -hmm. You didn't leave enough Kongs at home filled with peanut butter for them to explore and 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 whatever. And so your furniture is just gone. And so I'm concerned that as a population, people, especially Americans, 
derive a great deal of their identity and self-worth from what they do. And if they're not doing anything, what happens then as a society? So even the greatest robotopia, uh, you know, can have a shadow side to it. I mean, this is the problem with Mount Olympus, right? You have all these Greek gods sitting around all day, immortal, nothing to do. What do they do? They just cause trouble because they just had too much free time. That, in all honesty, that is the most fascinating thing when it comes to futurist thought that I've ever. I, that I don't think anybody has actually conveyed that kind of idea to me that i'm i'm a little spellbound on that one so thank you <laughs> thank you i mean i i had you know i i can kind of see it uh well yeah you're right i mean high drive individuals a german shepherd is a great example of a high drive uh dog yeah or a belgian malinois or you know german short hair pointer yeah 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 that would be or rottweiler well, these are all German dogs. Well, okay, never mind. Let's get away from that. Um, <laughs> all okay. working dogs. All, all working dogs. dogs. All yeah, working the AKC dogs. would tell you the AKC. that's what that is. They're working dogs. Working okay, good. Um, awesome. Well, hey, uh, yeah, I think this is a great conversation and a good time to wrap up. Any parting words? No, I, I, you know, it's a pleasure to work with you at GDA. I, I, I you know we've done a number of great events together. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to do this podcast and look forward to sharing my thoughts with different groups in the year ahead. I think it's going to be really good. There's a lot of exciting stuff going on. And uh, I know we always get really great questions and try to make sure that everyone has a good time, even if they're uh, the message sometime, uh, you know, is, is a tough one. The, the best part really is the Q and a now, right? I mean, oh, like, yeah, for sure. the, the Q and A is where the Q and A is where you get people who ask some good questions when you come and speak, right? Oh, for sure. You know, that's, you know, people have these questions, these, these you know, they watch CNBC, they watch Bloomberg, they read the journal, you know, they want to, they, they have thoughts, they have questions, they want to talk about it. And, you know, it gives, it provides a venue and, and a time to talk about some, some economic things that people might be thinking about, might be wondering about, might be important for them personally, them professionally, their company, their strategy, their investments. And it's a chance to talk about these kinds of things. And, uh, you know, it's usually a very uh, interesting and, and helpful kind of discussion. So it's uh, I'll, I'll – I'll end with a comment on that. But one of the things that I uh, one of the things that I do every month is I go to this lecture series at uh, SMU University, which is uh, near the office here in Dallas. And um, I always know who the speaker is going to be for this Tate lecture series that I go and, and I go and watch. And I prepare when I know I, I have a good six or seven questions ready to go on Twitter, and I'm just waiting for the hashtag for the night so I can just fire them off. And I, I kind of wonder sometimes if people are just prepared with a good question that they spent all week thinking about for you. And then they bring it to you and you're like, okay, let me just solve this in five seconds and explain it really easily. Well, I think there's some questions people have they might have been thinking about for a while and they hear the, the presentation and certain things kind of light a spark. And I think there's other folks who – uh, you know, they might have been thinking about something longer. They have a pressing issue at work or in their industry and they want to talk about it. And that's that's really great. You know, because I, and one of the benefits is, of course, you know, I personally meet with central banks, executives in oil and gas, OPEC members, uh, folks in the metals and mining space, folks in agriculture. So I see consumption across the supply chain. I see the supply there, you know, so I see supply, demand, uh, pricing, and I'm, I'm in all of these markets from a forecasting standpoint. And that's really helpful because, 
the, the globalization of finance, something I'm actually talking about at South by Southwest in March uh, in a keynote is, you know, you, you see this moving more uh, in that direction, right? Where foreign exchange and, and the economy, they, the, these big macro things, they matter so much to uh, different markets and interest rates and currencies and commodities. It all works together, equities, interest rates, the, the, the whole thing just kind of uh, plays off itself. And, and that's really become more critical. The interrelation between those markets has accelerated over time. Some of it's because of different things in fintech and the acceleration and velocity of trading. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a natural progression. I think you're going to see that continue and remain the story going forward. All right, very good. Well, hey, thanks, Jason, uh, for joining us. And um, look forward to future events with you, man. Sounds great. Thank you, Kyle. Cool. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of GDA Podcast, powered by GDA Speakers. If you're interested in booking today's guest, visit GDA Speakers at gdaspeakers.com or call 214-420-1999. Visit gdapodcast.com and subscribe to our newsletter to stay up to date and be informed of new episodes, blog posts, and more. Be sure to follow GDA Podcast on Twitter and Instagram at GDA Podcast, as well as Facebook at facebook.com slash GDA Podcast. Thanks again and stay tuned for more from GDA Podcast and GDA Speakers.